Uh, you may be seated. Um, most of you know that I've spent a, a fair amount of time overseas, um, and I've had the privilege of interacting with people of, of many different backgrounds and cultures. Um, and one of the things that I've that I began to notice as I was interacting with people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different countries um, is that mealtimes among these different peoples often look very, very different. Um, now, sure, the, the food is different. Like, that's to be expected, right? Um, but it's not just the food that's different. The, the entire atmosphere uh, of the event um, and the style of the meal um, is often very different from what we're used to, uh, particularly when you're gathering um, with groups for more intentional meals. I mean, it's, it's one thing to just go out with friends and, and go grab barbecue at the nearest restaurant. It's another thing to sit down uh, at an intentional meal um, with close family and friends. And, and th it's those times when we start to see the, the biggest differences in meals. And I kind of learned this the hard way. Um, so I, I have spent a good amount of time in Mongolian culture. Um, my wife is Mongolian, so I, I, I tend to, to find myself in those types of situations. And when Mongolians get together for a big meal, you can basically expect a two, three, maybe even four-hour event. Um, there's going to be food that covers table after table. Um, sometimes you're having to kind of squeeze the food onto the table, um, just wherever it can fit, and stack plates on top of each other. Um, there's going to be singing and talking and blessings given. Um, but what I quickly learned is that the pace of eating at these meals is often a lot slower than our fast food paced lives. Um, I personally eat really fast. If you've ever sat down with me, um, I'm always the first one done eating and just sitting kind of waiting for everybody else to finish. Um, so I found myself in these settings, I would eat and I would finish really fast. I'd be done in the first 20 to 30 minutes. Um, and then people started to notice that I stopped eating and they would, um, they'd ask why, I had, why I'm not eating very much. I'm like, well, I just ate more than you are gonna eat in the whole three hour meal in this 20 minute um, you know, period of time. And, um, but they, they started, you know, maybe even piling food onto my plate. Um, and, and so at some point, as they kept, uh, kept coercing me to continue to eat, the level of fullness that I experienced became painful. Um, and that was, was still, you know, about two hours to go in the meal. <laughs> So, needless to say, I, I gradually learned to pace myself a bit at these meals um, and eat a little bit more slowly and actually engage at the table. Um, what we're going to see today is, a, is another conversation around another dinner table. Um, and it's a cultural context that's likely very foreign to most of us. Um, so it's going to be helpful to keep that in mind as we go through this. This is, this is a culture that most of us aren't readily familiar with. Um, and so we're going to need to adjust our vantage point as we watch this meal unfold. Um, and so just to kind of set the scene for this, this meal takes place with Jesus being in the house of a ruler of the Pharisees for a Saturday meal. And let's take a look at how it all unfolds, starting in Luke 14.1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? 
Now, as we read through this, there, there may be um, something that comes across as a little bit strange um, in the, the way that this is written, especially there in verse 3. Um, it, it tells us that Jesus responded to the Pharisees and lawyers, but it doesn't ever tell us what they said. But as we look a little closer at this, we're going to see that they really didn't need to say a word. Jesus' response was to their actions, and their actions were revealing something very dark in their hearts. Here's what's happening. This was an important meal at an important man's house. The religious leaders were there paying close attention to Jesus. They were watching him. Um, they, they ultimately wanted to catch Jesus in a trap here, and they had done this a, a number of times. Um, we can look back even just through Luke and see that on a number of occasions, these religious leaders wanted to catch Jesus doing some work on the Sabbath day. Um, and he wasn't supposed to do that. No work was supposed to be done on the Sabbath day. And, and the Sabbath was, was ordained by God in the, the Ten Commandments. Um, you can even trace it back to Genesis 1 where God rested. Um, and in the Ten Commandments, God told the Israelites to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, the religious leaders, they wanted to add some extra boundaries to this so that nobody would even come close to dishonoring the Sabbath. So they added a whole bunch of extra rules, and they were going to try to catch Jesus breaking their rules. Um, so they put a man with dropsy in front of him to see what he would do. Dropsy is a disease in which you experience painful swelling um, in, in your limbs, or, um, and it's primarily due to kidney, heart, or liver conditions. Um, it's more commonly referred to now as edema. Um, so what had happened is the religious leaders here had found someone with an obvious physical ailment, uh, and they were going to exploit this man to see how Jesus would react. So when Luke tells us that Jesus responded, that's what Jesus is responding to. He's responding to the motivation of their hearts here. And his response is a pointed question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Here's what he's doing. He knows that they've set up this trap for him on the Sabbath. So he's flipping it back on them. See, the religious leaders clearly have not been able to heal this man on the Sabbath or any other day. So he's revealing in this that they were ultimately admitting that they believed that he had power that they didn't. But he also reveals the posture of their hearts. They didn't really care about this man's plight at all. In their disdain for Jesus, they were exploiting this man just to prove a point. So Jesus is basically asking them if they're okay with this man continuing to suffer. They know Jesus has the, the ability to heal this man. So Jesus is asking them, okay, do you, is it okay for me to heal him now? Or should he continue to suffer at least until tomorrow? And then he takes it to another level. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to those things. So first things first, Jesus heals this man. He frees him from his suffering but then he gets straight to the hearts of these religious leaders. Again, they were using this man as a test for Jesus. Um, but they would, they would never have done the same thing had it been their own son. They wouldn't have even done the same thing had it been one of their oxen. 
As one commentary put it, this afflicted man would not have been invited to such an important dinner were it not that the Pharisees wanted to use him as bait to catch Jesus. They knew that Jesus could not be in the presence of human suffering very long without doing something about it. I'm just glad that, that today none of us are like these religious people at all. I'm, I'm glad that there aren't any ways that we use piety to cover up our inaction. Or maybe, maybe we should think deeply about what Jesus is asking here and let it bring deep conviction to our hearts as well. Are there people that we want to have around just to give us the appearance of caring for people, but relationships, real deep relationships with those people are, are not necessarily a priority for us? In other words, whose well-being are we willing to ignore in lieu of our comfort? Jesus would have no part of that. He healed the man and sent him away. He didn't, that, that man didn't need to continue to subject himself to the unjust motives of those who were just using him. Jesus didn't want him to be exploited. He wanted to set him free. And at this point, I think we kind of all would like for Jesus to just stop pressing. Like, okay, we get it. Yeah, this is, this is we, we get it. The conviction's there. Let's just have dinner, right? But Jesus is going to keep going. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. All right. So after this interaction with the man with dropsy, he, Jesus heals him and says, just, just go home. Um, you don't need to be here anymore and, 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 and see what these guys are doing to you anymore. Um, but at that point, Jesus kind of looks around the table and, and he sees, okay, these people are kind of arranging themselves at the table and they're, they're kind of jockeying for positions of honor. Now, this is the home of a ruler of the Pharisees, so obviously he would have had the most important seat. And the assistant to the ruler of the Pharisees would have seated himself in the seat closest to him. The way that these seating arrangements worked is that the seat closest to the host was the seat of honor. And, and as you worked outward from there, um, your honor in the, level, uh, in the room kind of went down. So I can, I can give you a, a guess as to where the man with dropsy would have been arranged in that room. He, he would have probably been at, at a different table altogether. But Jesus hits on this theme over and over, and we see it repeated time after time in the Gospels. The power and prestige and wealth and honor of this world mean nothing in the kingdom of God. And the more we pursue and chase after those things, the farther we get from the priorities of our king. In the book, When People Are Big and God is Small, um, Edward T. Welch refers to the need for this type of honor and affirmation from others as love tanks with a leak. Listen to how he describes this um, playing out in his own life and in his marriage. He says this, I suddenly realized that I had mutated into a walking love tank, 
a person who was empty inside and looking for a person to fill me. My bride was indeed gifted in being able to love, but no one could have possibly filled me. I think I was a love tank with a leak. And he, go on, he goes on to say this, I've spoken with hundreds of people who end up at this same place. They are fairly sure that God loves them, but they also want or need love from other people, or at least they need something from other people. As a result, they are in bondage, controlled by others and feeling empty. They are controlled by whoever or whatever they believe can give them what they think they need. And this is what Jesus is getting at here. All of these very religious people needed affirmation and prestige, and they knew who held the keys to those in society. They were desperate for people to look up to them, so they positioned themselves in these high places, and Jesus is watching it play out right in front of him. He sees what it's doing to them, and he sees in turn what it's causing them to do to others. He sees really quickly how they exploited this man with dropsy so that they could stand in judgment over Jesus. They were putting, him, they were putting themselves over both Jesus and this man. And then he watches as they file into their places of honor at the table. Now, let me pause for a second and, and say this. This isn't the same as talking about us supporting each other in church. It, it isn't talking about us building each other up here. God has ordained that the church is given to us as a gift so that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. It's where we are built up into full maturity. It's where we love one another, bear one another's burdens, and carry one another's burdens. So, so that's not what I'm talking about when I say we don't need other people. Um, God has ordained that the church is a place that we fulfill these things for one another, and we do carry each other's burdens. What I'm talking about is needing the approval and the recognition of others. It's finding our value and our worth in the way that others see us. When you're pursuing popularity, the people from whom you seek notoriety have control over you. And you ultimately will begin to look more like them than like yourself, and definitely more like them than like Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening here. All of these people were lining up to get as much praise and notoriety and recognition as they possibly could, while Jesus could be found among the weak and the poor and the marginalized. Jesus was known as a friend to sinners. He rejected their social hierarchies altogether, and he wasn't impressed with their seats of honor. In fact, his love for us compelled him to leave the absolute highest seat possible and come to earth. As Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So in light of that, in light of who Jesus is, and what he left to serve us. Can you understand how silly it is for us to quibble over seats at a dinner table? What is the glory of men when Jesus is offering us a seat at his table? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And now Jesus is going to turn his attention to the host, this ruler of the Pharisees. Let's look in 12 to 14. He also said, he said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, 
Do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is really interesting. Jesus is going to continue to dig out the motivations of our hearts here. Let's not forget that this man had had invited a man with dropsy in need of healing, right? So he he had done this, right? He had invited the poor, the lame. He had had invited these people. Uh, But this man with dropsy likely would have been one of these marginalized people in society. It would have been likely that he would have been declared unclean. So on the surface, again, it seems like this man had done just what Jesus had said. He had invited this man. Uh, but again, he wasn't inviting him because he wanted, them, wanted him there. It wasn't because he valued his presence. He invited him so that he could exploit him in an effort to trap Jesus. And now Jesus is going to turn that around on him. Uh, this is essentially Jesus saying, that man that I just healed, yeah, that's who you should be inviting to your feast. That's exactly who you should. But you shouldn't be inviting them just to score political points You should be treating them as your honored guests. He should have been given the place of honor. See, here's something very familiar um, that the religious, this is something that the religious leader would have been very familiar with. Comes from Deuteronomy chapter 14. You can go there with me if you want. I'm going to read it. Deuteronomy 14 verses 22 through 29. It says, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there. Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. Here it is. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are in your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Now, there is some speculation as to whether this was the initial tithe um, that, that God gave or if this is Moses' um, instituting a second tithe. Um, But regardless, the purpose of this is clear. The Israelites were to set aside a portion of their harvest to be used for a massive feast. And look who they were supposed to invite. The Levite who had no portion, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Those who were unable to provide for themselves were to be invited to this feast. They were invited to come eat their fill, and enjoy fellowship with the community. God wanted the Israelites to enjoy the harvest. This tithe wasn't set aside because God needed it. No, it was set aside for the flourishing of the entire community. And God would allow no partiality. 
So Jesus isn't calling these religious leaders to something new, to something they shouldn't have understood already. He's calling them to be faithful to what God has always expected of his people, yet so often they had rejected it. This is the same reason they found themselves being conquered by Babylon and and found themselves in exile for 70 years. Jesus is calling them here to love their neighbors as they love themselves. He's calling them, as they were reminded multiple times in the Old Testament, to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. They were once the lowly. As he told them in Deuteronomy, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Or as he said in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So these religious leaders had neglected who God told them they were and had begun to lord their high status over others. And Jesus was not okay with it. And so maybe we should stop right now and ask ourselves how we're lining up with this. How are we doing? What is the posture of our hearts as we look at this? How is this working itself out in our lives? We may believe the gospel, but is it pushing us outward toward those who need it? Are our lives being lived so that others may flourish? Let's look at the last part of this passage. And Jesus is about to raise the stakes again. When one of those who reclined a table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I, go, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported all these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So this man who speaks up makes an assumption. He says something very true. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But here's his assumption. He assumed that those who were at the table that day were going to be the ones to enjoy the bread in the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't allow him to make that assumption. In other words, you can't assume your way into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter what your heritage, pedigree, social status, any of that is. It doesn't matter if your family has been in the church for generations. You don't get to just assume that you belong. The invitation is there, but the invitation must be accepted, not just assumed. I want to look quickly at two passages that are going to make it very clear what Jesus is saying here. The first place is John 5, 39 through 40. 
He tells the the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And the second is how we started the service today, Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. In other words, Jesus is offering a feast that these religious leaders were missing entirely. They were invited, but they had already had their fill on junk food and had no room left for the feast. So Jesus is now inviting in those people that that these religious leaders had specifically left out of their gatherings, and he's given them the place of honor. He's finding those who have been long excluded are actually hungry, and now they're eating and being filled. In his book, Strong and Weak, Andy Crouch tells the story of a woman named Angela who has a serious medical condition. He explains how this condition brought her into a community of people who were devoted for her care and health that she would have never been introduced to otherwise. This network of people included doctors and nurses and nutritionists, among others. But because she found herself in this vulnerable position, she found herself invited into this otherwise unlikely community. Although she was suffering physically, she was flourishing relationally. She saw that she was loved and valued and cared for. And that's exactly what Jesus is describing. That's what God's people were supposed to be for one another. It's still what God's people are supposed to be for one another. It's why Jesus said it's not the healthy but the sick who need a doctor. It's why he said he came to seek and save the lost. He wants us to be around his table. He wants us to enjoy the feast with him. But I wonder how often we essentially tell him, no thanks, I'm full. And I also wonder how often we've enjoyed our feast without him because he's out with the people that we should have invited into ours. We like to give the Pharisees a hard time. In fact, the way that they're talked about can often be downright anti-Semitic. And I think it's often because we see ourselves as better than they are. But as Jesus shoots straight at their hearts in this passage, can we really hold ourselves up as shining examples of his teaching? We, we love to hold the Pharisees up as poster children for hypocrisy, but what if we could just as easily insert our own names and not miss a beat? And yet here is the incredible news for us. Just as he did with the Pharisees and lawyers, Jesus wants to sit down and dine with us. The invitation is always there. It's there for followers of Jesus, and it's there for those who have yet to follow him. It's a daily invitation for us, just as we need food daily to sustain us. He's inviting us to join him for a meal of our daily bread today. And he's inviting us to one day join him for a wedding banquet that he will enjoy with us anew in his kingdom. And he wants a full house. Pay attention to that at the end of this. Go go find people that my house may be filled. 
He wants every seat at his table to be filled. But it's an invitation that we must accept. And here's how Jesus ends his parable. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of these men who are invited shall taste in my banquet. That should be sobering for us. For those of us in Christ, it's not a fearful thing, but it's a sobering thing. So what path will you choose? Will you choose the feast at the table of the king, or will you choose to be filled now with the Turkish delight that the world has to offer? But just as Jesus commanded his servant, I'm here to plead with you to come in. Come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of your banquet where you invite us in. Father, um, we recognize um, that in so many ways we live our lives in hypocrisy. We try to convince ourselves that we don't, Father, but if we really stop and and listen to the words of Jesus, um, in so many ways our, our lives don't look like that. Father, break us for that. Bring conviction to our lives. We are, we are enjoying our lives and, and neglecting those around us who, who can't, who don't have the means, who are struggling to get by. But Father, ultimately, let us, let us long for this day when we get to join you at your table at the wedding feast of the Lamb. And and Father, let us be this servant who gets to go and invite people in. And Father, let our lives reflect that we want people to be invited in. Father, bring conviction to our hearts today. Do what you will with these words. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.